Welcome to the Office Hours podcast. I'm Vincent Chow, and today I'm chatting with Professor Oriana Bandiera, Tony Atkinson Professor of Economics here at the LSE. Oriana, thank you for chatting with me today. You're very welcome. So you are specialising in development economics, and this is something that I'm very interested in, in talking to you about. I just want to start off maybe with a disarmingly simple question: What is development economics? Sure, development economics is economics for developing countries. It targets, in particular, the challenges that people face in a low-income environment. But a lot of the topics that development economics covers are the same topics that we cover for more advanced economies, like labor rights, migration, minimum wages, uh, public finance, taxes, transfers, welfare states, and the like. Uh, what uh, development economics also has in common with the rest of economics is that it's nothing what people imagine economics to be about. You know, when the typical economist goes to a party, in the case in which economists go to parties, they're asked about price of stocks or inflation rates or interest rates. Now, that's not really what most economists do. We don't spend time forecasting these quantities. Uh, what we spend time doing, rather, is to understand how people make choices and how they are constrained in making their choices, and how this ultimately determines their welfare, their happiness. That's what economics is about. It's about how people behave. Mm-hmm. And um, development economics is how people behave and how the constraints differ in low-income environments. Right. But so development economics as a discipline within, as a f- field of research within the larger branch of economics is actually a, a quite a recent trend, right? So it only started emerging about uh, 10, 20 years ago, is that right? Well, as a matter of fact, development economics was always there, but it hadn't adopted the modern, more quantitative methods of economics. So it was kept separate from the rest of economics because the methodology differed. What happened then, like in the early 90s, was that some Bengali theorists, because they were originally from India, started becoming interested in using economic theory, like contract theory and the like, to explain what was going on in low-income countries. But I think the true revolution in development economics came with the arrival of randomized controlled trials, because that basically took development economics and brought it at the forefront of empirical research. So the method that we use in development are the most advanced in applied economics that there are. And the, you know, the rigor that is employed is actually much higher. And that's what brought development economics back into the mainstream. Right. And can you just briefly explain what a randomized controlled trial is? Of course, um, a lot of economics is concerned uh, with the evaluation of policies. So let's assume that you want to reduce poverty. And uh, you decide that perhaps the poor are poor because they cannot borrow. And so you give them microfinance, which has been in the papers a lot recently, okay? Um, you want to know whether microfinance works. Now, if you compare people who have borrowed from a microfinance institution to those who haven't, you will not be able to tell whether microfinance helped them because the people who borrow are different from those who don't. So what you have to do in order to assess whether microfinance works is the same of what doctors do when they want to measure whether a pill or a medicine works. You have to administer the pill to a randomly chosen set of people who don't know that they were randomly chosen to receive the pill. 
And you have to compare their outcome to a randomly chosen set of people who were not given that treatment. And that's what randomized control trials are. They're a method of uh, evaluating policies, which relies on the random allocation of the policy. So to create two groups, which are perfectly comparable. Mm -hmm. And so randomized control trials are ways of measuring the effectiveness or the success of different kinds of interventions, right? That's correct. And so what are the kinds of interventions that are typically talked about in development economics? So microfinance was not a random example. It's actually attracted a lot of attention. And it's a good example because for a long time, it was believed to be, you know, the way to save the poor from poverty. Once randomized control trials started coming out, the results were way more negative than originally hoped. Mm -hmm. It actually turns out, you know, that uh, microfinance only helps people who are really at the border between poverty and not. So, for instance, if you already have a business and you need, uh, say that you have a shop and you sell newsagent stuff and you need to buy a new fridge because the temperature is hot and people demand more cold drinks, then microfinance helps you with that because it's a very small loan which allows you to buy the fridge and you have to repay it very quickly the fridge will generate revenues very, very quickly, so you will be able to repay the loan. But if now you imagine a person who has no assets whatsoever, they don't have a shop, they don't have a business, they work as a maid in a rich person's house. You lend them $60. They cannot change their lives with that. It's simply too little. By the time they start a business, they already have to repay the loan. And that's why microfinance is not transformative the way that people were hoping it would be, just because the amounts involved in the repayment period are so tiny. So the amount is tiny and the repayment period is so short that there's no time for people to change their lives around. Mm -hmm. So at this point, I do want to go on a bit of a tangent, which is to ask you personally, how did you get involved in development economics? Were you always a development economist? Uh, well, that would involve telling you how I became an economist, which is too long of a story. Uh, but I became, I think I was always a development economist. I come from uh, an underdeveloped part of Italy. I come from the south of Italy, uh, which has been effectively a developing country forever. So uh, it's true that, of course, people there do not face the challenges that people in sub-Saharan Africa face because there is still an infrastructure of a rich country. But nevertheless, the, the themes, I mean, I've seen poor people all my life and the question of why do people stay poor is one that I've always been interested in. Mm -hmm. And you're actually writing a paper right now about why... You this persistence effect about why people stay poor, right? Yes. Uh, this is the big question, I think, in development economics. And it's the big question in economics in general, because being poor is not very nice. So we can't think that people are poor because they enjoy that. Mm. So I think there are basically two views in economics, but also in general, uh, of poverty. The first view is that people are poor because they're either lazy, so they don't have the motivation, or they don't have the talent that's needed to escape poverty. And so in that view, everybody has access to the same opportunities. So it doesn't matter which family you're born in, 
if you're born in a poor family or in a rich family, you have access to the same opportunities. So the only thing that can explain why some people are poor and some people are not is that some people are lazier or less talented than others. And so if laziness and talent is hereditary, then you can get these, you know, poor dynasties. Mm -hmm. The other view of the world is that it's not true that everybody has access to the same opportunities. Rather, the wealth that you're born with determines the opportunity that you have access to. And um, in this uh, paper that we're working on, we are trying to disentangle between these two views of the world which is surprisingly difficult to do. And that's why we probably have left-wing parties and right-wing parties. It's a matter of belief which one you think is a better explanation of the world. There are plenty of people out there who think that everybody has access to the same opportunities and plenty of people who believe that that's complete bonkers. And uh, they only discuss on faith. They don't discuss with data. What we can do here is to actually bring some data to the question. And the way we do that is the following. Um, back in 2007, we started collaborating with this uh, very large NGO called BRAC. And BRAC understood that microfinance was not useful for the poorest of the poor because they didn't have anything to do with those $50. They couldn't start a business with $50. So what they did instead was to give them a very large amount. And this very large amount was basically worth one year of income. So imagine you have one income one year, BRAC comes and doubles that on the spot. The way they did that was by means of a productive asset, in particular a cow, because that's what people do in these rural villages in poor Bangladesh. So they gave them a cow and they taught them how to take care of the cow and then see whether the poor managed to escape poverty thanks to this big transfer or whether they stay poor. Now, what happened was that about 70% of the beneficiaries did extremely well. Year after year, they started accumulating more cows and they started buying land. They started selling cows, so they got the cows pregnant and they started selling cows and their lives were transformed. Another 30% fell back into the state that they were before the transfer. And so what we try to understand is whether... These people who fall back did so because for them, the transfer was not big enough. And that's exactly what we find. Although all the beneficiaries were incredibly poor, some were slightly poorer than others. And in particular, they didn't have some complementary assets that you need for the cows. By this, I mean uh, a rickshaw to take the milk that the cow produces and bring it to the market. So people who had a rickshaw once they got the cow, they could start running, mm-hmm. you know, or rather they could start pedaling and bring the milk <laughs> to the market. People who didn't have a rickshaw couldn't do that. And so they couldn't generate enough income to pay the person with the bull to inseminate the cow and the cow to have calves and so on. Mm. So it is, if you imagine the world, the way that economies see this is what is the return to the first investment? Say so that you invest and you buy one cow, your first cow, is that enough to generate enough income so that tomorrow or the year after you can buy more cows? Or is it not enough so that actually the cow gets old and slowly, slowly you're back to what you started? 
what we can show is that it is the latter. So an investment when you have nothing yields a lot less than an investment made when you have other assets. And for this reason, wealth at birth determines which opportunities you have. Because if you're born, if your father leaves you a business, then whatever investment you make on top of that business will grow faster hmm. than the case in which you start with nothing. Right. And so we show that effectively there are poverty traps in these rural villages in Bangladesh and that to push people above the poverty trap, you need to give them at least one year worth of income, a transfer that's huge. If you think that this transfer in Bangladesh, the average person got $500, the average micro loan is $50. So we're talking about something that's 10 times as big as what people think normally to be sufficient to lift people out of poverty. Mm. And that's because of this initial difficulty in getting a good returns on the investment, that the investment has to be big enough for it to pay off. And it sounds to me like the difference, the key difference in how development economists like you and the examples you use illustrate this quite well is this difference between just looking at, you know, economic growth and GDP growth and then this more detailed and intimate look at the actual levels of development in these countries. So as you say, I mean, you could maybe someone could look at the GDP growth of Bangladesh and then say, Look, this, it's growing, right? And this, this means that poverty is, is improving, that the poverty situation is improving. But then the studies that you cite is that you find that even though there are these poor people who are getting richer, the ultra poor or the, the poorest of the poorest aren't. And there are these poverty traps, as you say, that actually lead them to, to not have the same rate of growth, to not be part of that recovery that a country like Bangladesh is having. Yeah. Is that, is that, do you think that's a good way to frame that? That's a perfect way to frame that. I would only add that that's not just a problem of Bangladesh or Uganda or the places that we study. This is a problem of every country. There is persistent poverty everywhere. If you look at the statistics for the United States, they are scary. You can use the World Bank poverty line that they use in middle income countries, $5 a day. Can you imagine living in London with $5 a day? There are millions of people in the US, in the UK, that live with less than $5 a day. Mm. So I think, you know, what we call poverty traps or unequal access to opportunities is not a problem of poor countries alone. Right. I think it's a good question, actually. So development economics, I think you talked about in your definition, which is that it is just look, it's looking at developing countries. But as you say, you have these same problems in developed countries. So do we need a kind of uh, extension of development economics to not just look at developing countries and to also maybe look at ourselves at home? Well, that version exists already. It's called labor and public economics. <laughs> so then, I, I yeah. have actually two hats. Mm. I'm the editor of the Journal of Labor Economics because I also do work using data from the UK or the US. So if the similar question is asked with data in the US, it belongs to labor. And if it's asked with data from developing countries, then it belongs to development. Mm. I wonder where, I wonder whether, is it, is it still correct to call it a niche then, uh, or a, a, a sub, subset of economics, development economics? It's definitely not a niche. 
here at the NFC, I think we are one of the biggest development groups in the world, but we have eight faculty working on development economics. I don't think any other field is as big, but uh, also in places, you know, like leading institutions like MIT, Harvard, Princeton, there are many development economists. Mm-hmm. One question I have is about these very specific examples. So as you say, randomized control trials, they're best when you know you have a very specific case in a, in a developing country. To what extent are the conclusions that you draw from these trials able to be applied to other contexts and able to be scaled up to, let's say, a national level? That's a very good question. And it's one of the main criticisms of randomized control trials, that they only give you one very precise information on a number that nobody cares about. Imagine that you're looking at one village in one country and you try, you know, red pens versus blue pens in the school and you find that with the blue pen, the kids are a lot more productive and they score better. What's the external validity of that? That's how we call it. Right? External validity. The external validity. Okay. Is this result valid elsewhere? Mm-hmm. That's where I think the strength of economics comes into play and why development is a proper field of economics. What you need there is theory. And you need theory because theory gives you the mechanism through which the effect happens. So let me give you an example. In Coming back to Bangladesh, the poor women in Bangladesh who got the cow. If I told you, look, we gave them cow, there were a hundred of them, 70 escaped poverty and 30 didn't. We did a randomized control trial. That's what we found. You might wonder if I apply this to Zambia, am I going to find the same? Right? And you'd be right to question that. But if I tell you, look, we found exactly why this happens. This happens because those 30% were so poor that the transfer was not enough to pass that threshold after which an investment is productive enough that is self-sustainable. Now you know the mechanism. So now you can go to Zambia and see what's the minimum scale of investment that you need to do in order for it to be self-sustainable. So you see the difference. A randomized control trial that tells you the answer without telling you why they got that answer mm-hmm. doesn't teach you much about the world because you don't know whether in another country the answer is going to be 60-40 or even worse, 30-70. Right? A randomized control trial that tells you the mechanism that underlies the answer gives you a roadmap. It tells you once you go to another country, you have to look at this parameter and that will tell you whether it's going to be 70, 30, 80, 20, or 100. And these countries that you cite, so they're, they're these very poor countries. And obviously, a big part of development economics is the money that these rich countries send to poor countries in, in the form of foreign aid or, let's say, foreign direct investments from major corporations. And so I do want to ask you maybe a question that you don't get, often get asked in economics, which is the ethics of all of this. And what, how do you think about the moral obligations of these rich countries to these poor countries? See, economics has a terrible reputation because we ask ourselves that question all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so there are different aspects of the ethical question. The first aspect is what you said, you know, do we have a moral obligation to help those less fortunate than us? 
we should start asking, if you ask me, if we should start asking ourselves that question, looking at home, because there are a lot of less fortunate people in this country, and there doesn't seem to be much of a sense of moral obligation to help them. But there is also, and maybe more, not more interestingly, but less immediate, the opposite question, which is, who are we to tell these people what to do? Mm-hmm. We are not the elected government of Zambia. The World Bank or the IMF are not elected by the Zambian population. So why can the World Bank go to Zambia and tell them, you want this money, you have to balance the budget? They don't do that anymore. So this is what you call conditionality, right? Yes. Right. But for a long time, that's what they did. Mm-hmm. They imposed you know, the Washington consensus policy, low inflation, low budget deficit, and all of that, in order to give money. Mm. Now, there is an interesting ethical question there. We haven't been elected. The World Bank is paid by taxpayers in rich countries. These taxpayers are not elected by the population of Zambia to decide what Zambia has to do. But even the, even you could say the, the decision, the Zambian government, even they, they, they don't often put these decisions to a referendum for the people to ask whether we should commit to these reforms, right? No, but at the same time, they've been elected mm. by the people, so they're representing the people. We don't need to do referenda for everything. Okay. We've seen the price yeah. of that. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, they are representative of the people. But, of course, when you tell a poor country, here is an enormous amount of money. If you want it, you have to do this. It's mm. not exactly a balanced conversation that mm-hmm. you're having. So, you know, the silver lining of all of this is that although foreign aid makes the news a lot, is actually a drop in the ocean. Mm-hmm. It's way less than you think relative to the government budget of these countries. Is really a little, little amount. Mm-hmm. It's a bit, uh, forgive me for saying this, but it's the typical Western-centric view of the world that we see development through the eyes of the money that we send there, whereas we should see more of, you know, how do we enable these poorer countries to grow mm. rather than pay our way out. Yeah, definitely. Do you, so you, this ethical question, do you think that enough attention is paid to it or do you have a personal opinion on whether there is a moral obligation? Not, not to transfer money, let's say, but to actually pay a lot of attention to these developing countries and for people to actually care about this specific um, field in economics. I personally think that we focus a lot on improving technology and uh, you know to have more to push the frontier upward and what we do not focus at all is to get the right people to do the job that they can do best which in economics we call to allocate talent to where it's um, most efficient use okay And I think that uh, our attitude towards developing countries should be the same. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of talent there, lots of smart people. You know, the person who will discover the cure for cancer has a much higher chance of being born in India than to be born in this country, simply because there's so many more people over there. Mm -hmm. Okay? And uh, so I think everybody would benefit if your access to opportunities would be proportional to your talent rather than the accident of birth of being born in a rich family in a borough of London. Mm. So from that point of view, I think it's obvious that we all should care 
about enabling everybody, regardless of where they're born, how rich, how poor, how white, how black, to have the best chance to make the best use of their talent. Because it's not us and them. Mm. It's just us. We only have one planet. Yeah. And I think that is one of the, probably the misconceptions about these, especially a discipline like economics. It's always pitting two sides against one another. You have the haves and the have-nots. You have the rich versus the poor. You have the first world versus the third world. And I, I do think that I feel like development economics it's, I'm guilty of it myself of these, having these misconceptions. So I'm really glad to have, have you clarify some of these things with me today. So Professor Oriana Bendera, thank you for chatting with me today. It was a very enlightening discussion. Um, I just want to end with some recommendations. So is there something that you could point our listeners towards if they're interested in learning more about this issue? Absolutely. I think the biggest change in the past 10 years or so is the incredible availability of data. We now have fantastic data, so you can start looking at the facts, which is the only thing that we should be looking at. So we don't have to base our arguments on opinions. We should base our arguments on facts. And uh, there are a couple of websites, which I can give you the links to, that contain data on development for a long, long time, starting from the 1800s, 1850s, for all the countries in the world. Mm. So you can look at fertility rates, death rates, family size, uh, you know, jobs, unemployment rates, happiness, all sorts of variables. And so you can, you know, understand what the world looks like before worrying about things. Because I think people tend to worry about things that are not so quantitatively important Mm. and tend to ignore big problems which, you know, they don't know about Mm. because they're not politically salient for whatever reason. (laughs) So it's good to look at the data. I'll give you three websites. Okay, yes, and we'll we'll put the links in the description. So, Professor, thank you so much. You're very welcome.